0: It is my great honor and privilege to be with you today and to share on this topic of worship as a means of grace. What does it mean for worship to be a means of grace as we continue in this Grace filled Life series and spend this month of February thinking about worship and particularly Eucharist um, as a means of grace? Um, As I was was chatting with uh, Jessica and Hunter in preparation for this, this message today and as I was reflecting myself on worship as a means of grace... I thought there's no more fitting place to turn in Scripture than to the Psalms to begin reflecting on worship, to, to think about worship. The Psalms are really this amazing resource that we have. I continue to be astounded by them, not simply by their content, by um, the Scripture that's there, but just the fact that we have the Psalms is such an amazing thing. We have the content of worship passed down from the Old Testament people to the church in the year 2020, Um, it's such a beautiful thing to know that we can enter into this worship resource that has been given to us. We can pray the prayers that have been prayed for thousands of years, that we might speak and sing the content of the faith um, that has been passed down by God's people for thousands of years. On our lips can be the same um, words that were um, on the lips of God, have been on the lips of God's people for so long. Just a beautiful thing. And we can look to the Psalms and know that this is the material of worship. This has been handed down to us. This is the content of worship. And from the Psalms, we can actually learn about worship then. Um, We can learn how did the people of God worship in ancient times? Um, What uh, was the content of their worship? What did they focus on? What did they say? Um, How did they approach God? And then Um, we can also just uh, learn about worship itself. And that's what I want to do today by turning to Psalm 84. um, Not necessarily a a great exposition of Scripture um, or or proclamation in that sense. These are simply some reflections I have on worship based on Psalm 84, looking at Psalm 84, Um, some things that stand out to me. And there's a whole lot with worship. You know, you ask the question, what is worship? And it's a hard word to define succinctly because there's so much we can say. There's so much that needs to be said, and when we try to define it very very neat and tidily, sometimes we run the risk of being reductionistic and not say something important about worship that needs to be said. But I do hope that today with these reflections, we can unpack five principles in particular about worship that, that provide a starting point for us and help us begin to think about worship and to reflect on worship. So let's look at Psalm 84 and think about worship for, um, for just a little bit this morning based on on what we can draw out of Psalm 84. I want to spend uh, the, the first part, a good chunk actually, of this morning looking at these first two verses in particular. We'll look at some other parts of the psalm, but I really want to hang on these first two verses for a little bit. So here's how we hear Psalm 84 open. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now, you might have noticed on the screen um, when the scripture passage was being read, it showed the translation that we're using. Um, I uh, requested that we use the New King James Version this morning, specifically because I wanted to highlight this word tabernacle. This is probably a familiar psalm to us. Um, We've sung it. Um, It's been set to all kinds of musical settings. Um, and a lot of times when we sing it, we, we hear the language, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty. Um, and that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I really like this language of tabernacle. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. And the reason I like the word tabernacle there is because it reminds, it, it brings us into the Old Testament. Um, it, it helps us enter into the context of this psalm. And uh, one of the things that we need to do when we read the Psalms, I real, really read Scripture in general, but uh, something I like to do with the Psalms is it, it requires us, or, or we should at least, um, stretch ourselves to use our imaginations some. Um, we, uh, we use our intellect. We use our emotion. You know, there's a lot of things we can bring to Scripture. But I, I think there's something important about using our imaginations as well. And so using our imagination with Psalm 84 for just a moment, I want us to picture this scene think about the psalmist. We'll call him David. Um, say, um, David, you know, just, just drawing that out of the hat, you know. Um, so, so David, David is sitting here, and he's near this tabernacle, right? This is what I like to imagine as, 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 as he's writing the psalm. He was maybe sitting one afternoon, um, sitting near the tabernacle, um, just enjoying being outside and And uh, and reflecting and contemplating, and our uh, our psalmist named David, he tended to like to write things in lyrical reflections, and he's sitting there and looking at the tabernacle, and he's just overwhelmed by it. He's overwhelmed by the scene. He's overwhelmed looking at this place, and he's overwhelmed by knowing that this is the place where God dwells. This is the place where we can encounter the presence of God. And so he looks at the tabernacle and he says, Oh, how lovely is your tabernacle, O God of hosts. How lovely is this place that you have set up among us. Because we know what the tabernacle is, right? The tabernacle was the place set up where God's people could come meet with him. As they, originally, as they wandered in the desert, as they were nomadic people, God said, You're going to dwell in tents. And I'm going to dwell in a tent with you. You're going to set aside a place um, that's going to be special. It's going to be sacred. And you're going to do certain things to set this up. But it's going to be a place among you where you know my presence is there. You know my presence dwells with you. You can be assured, I am with you. I'm going to have a tent with you as you wander in the desert. And so the tabernacle, it's a place where God would dwell among his people. And David, looking at this tabernacle, says, how lovely Is it that you have a tabernacle? How lovely it is that you're with with us. How lovely is your dwelling place? How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts? It's a beautiful thing to see that, to know and be assured God is with us. God's presence is among us. Now, of course, um, our, our friend David, maybe he wrote another psalm. And maybe in that psalm he says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I go to escape from you? If I go to the highest heights, you are there. If I go to the deepest depths, you are there. No matter where I go, you are there, God. Now, David knows that. He's, he's assured of that. He says, yes, the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. The whole earth, anywhere on this earth, we can encounter the presence of God. But God has set up a dwelling place among us, a place where we can be assured and know that his presence is with us, a place where we can go and meet with God. And so the first principle of worship that this directs me to is to know that worship is a meeting with God. In worship, we are meeting with God. It's not a gathering about God. It's not a meeting about God, but it's a meeting with God. When we come to worship we come to encounter the very presence of God. When we come to worship, God is there. In fact, it is God that is welcomed to sin. God is here to meet with us. God's presence is there in worship. So we come to encounter the presence of God. We come to worship, we say, "How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, O Lord Almighty." And if God is present... The question is, how is he present? Now, we might have a sense, well, sure, God is present. You know, he sits back and he receives our worship. You know, uh, maybe in our minds, uh, not that I think that we'd go here, but we might sometimes have an attitude. Well, God is back on his throne and he's sitting and he's watching. He says, yeah, bring your worship to me. You know, I'll take it. Just do your things before me. But that's not how God has set up his presence. God wants to meet with us as well. It's not just us simply coming in to meet with God. God wants to meet with us. Um, God has invited us in. God has called us to worship. And then as we come to worship, God speaks to us. God shares with us. God, God proclaims his word to us as we hear scriptures read, as we hear the scriptures unpacked. God then invites us to a table. God invites us to receive what he wants to give to us then. And what is it that he wants to give to us? His grace, his own empowerment, his very self. And then God sends us out as his people to be his witnesses out in the world. See, God is active. God's not passive in worship, just as we're not called to be passive in worship. We are coming to meet with God. And in the same way, God is meeting with us and God is active. We can't conjure God's presence, and we also don't conjure God's activity. God is acting before us. God is calling us in. God is moving first. Which then leads me to the second principle of worship that we might understand. And that is that worship is a loving response to the first love of God. We are responding to what God has done first. God has called us. God has acted on our behalf. And we are coming to respond to that. We see a response here, right, in Psalm 84, uh, verse 2 in particular. So verse 1, we see this meeting with God. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. I love that. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. This longing, this desire, um, this, this something deep within the psalmist, within David here, that uh, longs for God. Um, this loving response. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. This, this visceral um, response to say, God, I long to be in your presence. God, I long to be with you. I long to know you. Um, I want more of you. And so we see an impassioned response here by, by the psalmist here in verse 2. And it's because of God's first activity towards humanity, towards his people, God's saving actions on our behalf, what God has done to show his love to us, to reveal his love to us, what God has done within our own lives, the testimonies that we share, the ways that we can say God has acted, God has made himself known to me, and now I come to God in a loving response to the first love that he has shown me. Alexander Schmemann, in his book, For the Life of the World, reminds us that we are more than human beings. Human beings are creatures that just do things. He says, we're more than human beings. He says, we are human adorans. We are humans that have desire. We are desiring beings. Um, And he says, we know this from the very first moments of our life. Um, As soon as we are outside of the womb we feel a physical drive towards hunger. We have a desire for food. We have a desire to be satiated. We have a desire to be filled. And the fact that we feel hunger is um, is proof of that. And it's also proof that we cannot fill ourselves, that we are not self-sufficient. We need something external to us. And he says, if that's true in a physical way, if that's true through something as as simple and as basic as food and hunger, how much more true is it spiritually? First of all, we are hungering beings. We are desiring beings. And we seek satisfaction. This reminds me of Augustine as well. Our souls are restless. We are restless until we find our rest in you that we cannot find satisfaction, we cannot find our desires filled, except for God alone, as Augustine would say, because God alone is eternal, therefore God alone can eternally satisfy. And so the fact that we feel desire is proof that we need things external to ourselves to fill us, to satiate us, and to keep us going. And so when we come to worship, we come with a desire for God. God. And the question is, where is our desire directed, and how are we seeking to satiate that desire? Now, let's just go back to food and hunger for a moment. If I feel hungry, it'd be very simple for me to say, well, I feel hungry, so I'm going to grab a bunch of Reese cups and an L8 and, uh, and, and fill myself that way. So if every time I ever felt hunger, that's what I did, I would not be in a very healthy place, right? Right. Um, as glorious as L.A. is um, and Reese Cups, that is not true nourishment for our bodies. Um, we need to find the right kind of nutrition, um, and we have a means of grace. We're going to talk about that later on this, uh, this semester. But, um, but, 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 I mean, we, we know that, right? Um, we know the importance of that. The same thing goes spiritually. How are we filling ourselves? What are the things that we're doing to satiate our desires? Where are they directed um, and, uh, and, and, and how are we seeking to fulfill those things? Um, is it in God? And, and worship uh, should be uh, something that drives us, you know, as, as we come to meet with God. Worship then um, not only fulfills our desire for God, but it also orients our desires toward God. Um, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Worship should serve to help orient us. Um, to direct our desires appropriately, or as Augustine would put it, to rightly order our love, and so we come to worship that it might order our desires, um, that we might um, find these things in God, and so we have to um, we, we have to um, then be aware of our desires and how they are being filled when we even when we come to worship, um, uh, Jessica preached a wonderful sermon last week about Idols and icons, and how sometimes icons that are meant for good, um, the good of worship, can become idols because we begin to focus on those things and seek for the. We delight in those lesser things than delighting in God, which they are meant to direct us toward. So, um, so sometimes in worship, I fear sometimes in worship, maybe our delights are are misguided or misdirected. What is it that we're delighting in? Are we delighting in the experience of worship itself? Are we delighting in some stimulus, um, whether that be emotional or mental? Um, some kind of stimulation that makes us feel something or challenges us or whatever. Um, and and our, our desires, our delight is getting misordered there, mis- misdirected, um, misguided in some way. And, uh, um, and we begin to find ourselves maybe seeking to, lighten, to delight in those things. And they don't fulfill. They don't satiate us. Uh, Rather than than coming to God and saying, it is God that we have come to encounter. It is God's presence that we have come into. It is God that we have come to delight in, to praise. Um, It is God that our hearts and flesh cry out for. Is our response, a loving response truly to God and to the love of God? Or are we seeking more selfish things? Are we seeking um, things that... um, or more gluttonous because of the way that um, they satiate us wrongly. And so we have to consider that. Where's our delight um, in worship and how is that being satiated? And is it truly in God alone and not in some experience and not even in, you know, saying, well, th- as Jessica reminded us so, so brilliantly, even just in a form of worship, well, I can't worship through that. Why? Because God isn't there? Or is it. Uh, because maybe my desires and my satisfaction is misdirected there. So, um, so we have to understand these things in worship as well. Another principle in worship that, uh, um, that I want to think about is, uh, uh, comes from a different way of reading the psalm. So we kind of looked at these psalms, um, uh, or looked at these first couple of verses of the psalms, just in the general uh, way that they're being portrayed by the psalmist, you know, imagining David sitting there looking at the psalm. But I want to take a different interpretive method for just a moment, and one that the church has done um, throughout its history, and that's to read the psalm Christologically for just a moment. What does this psalm say about Jesus Christ? Um, How can we think about it in terms of, of Jesus Christ? So we're going to use our imaginations for just a moment in that way. And to think about it in particular again, in these first couple of verses. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. If we turn to the Gospel of John, we see it begin with um, this, uh, this, this wonderful um, exposition of Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is as the Word. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the word was with God. And then we see um, how it begins to speak of the incarnation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We look at that phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and set up a dwelling place among us. Or another way to think of it, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That in Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the very presence of God, took on flesh, took on human form, and set up a tabernacle among us. So just as the people of God could be assured of the presence of God in their midst, as the tabernacle was there in the wilderness with them, and ultimately established in, um, in the promised land and, and and into the temple, now the new tabernacle has become Jesus Christ, the living tabernacle, the living God, the one who could dwell among us, the one who would teach us, the one who would show us the way to God and show us the true image of God. And so that reminds me of a third principle, that worship is rooted in Jesus Christ. That we look to Jesus Christ in his activity, his incarnation, what Christ has done that we might worship God. Christ has led us into worship. Christ has given us the image of God. Christ has come and Christ has lived among us. Christ has taught us. Christ has died. Christ rose from the dead to give us the promise of life, of the forgiveness of sins and freedom from sin and death that we might be led to the Father, And through Jesus Christ, we are able to enter in true worship of the Father. And so a third principle is that worship is rooted in Jesus Christ. Just as in the Old Testament, the worship of God's people was rooted in the Exodus event, what God had done to deliver them from slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt and led them into the Promised Land. So now we say, through Jesus Christ, God has led us out of slavery to sin and death and into the promised land of the kingdom. And so we look to Jesus Christ and we remember him. Our worship is a remembrance of the mighty acts of Jesus Christ. We recount them, we, we pray them, um, we remember them, and we anticipate what Christ will continue to do as he builds his kingdom here on earth and as we look towards his second coming. And all of that fuels our worship. So worship is rooted in Jesus Christ. And another way that we can also think of this is remembering what I said at the beginning. The Psalms have been on the lips of God's people throughout the history of God's people, since they were written. God's people have proclaimed these Psalms, and it, I, I just love that. I love to know that I can join in singing these Psalms, praying these Psalms, reading these Psalms with God's people through thousands of years, but to also know that I can join in with Jesus Christ in his own proclamation of these psalms the psalms are often on the lips of jesus in the gospels he was well versed in the psalms he knew the psalms he prayed the psalms he sang the psalms and to know that i can actually join in the worship of christ the worship that he gave to the father when he was here on earth by joining in these psalms as well is such a beautiful thing to me i i just i love it um i uh Um, I find myself overwhelmed by that so many times. And there's something beautiful that happens when we read Psalm 84 with this in mind. So think about Jesus saying these words. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. How beautiful is it to think of Jesus saying that? My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. For his father, the one who was one with the father, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself into human form, took on the likeness of humans, took on flesh, has a beating heart, and would know what it's like to desire and to long to be with his Father, to be in the presence of his Father, to be in the presence of God Almighty. And we know this is true, right? We have testimonies from from Scripture about this. Joseph and Mary um, come to the temple to worship, and then as they're on their way home, they say, "Uh uh-oh, we just lost the Son of God. Um, Kind of a big responsibility there. Um, But they... uh, You know, where's Jesus? Um, What's that? So they're going frantic, looking for him. Where where did you see him last? I don't know where you see him last. And they they backtrack and they make their way to the temple and Jesus is there, right? Um, He says, where do you think I'd be? What do you think I'd be doing? I'd be about my father's work. And I'd be in the place where my father is. Why? Because my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So we can join Jesus in that. So a fourth principle that comes to me um, dwelling on that is simply that worship reveals the beauty of the gospel, who Jesus is, begins to show the beauty of Jesus Christ, the beauty of the incarnation, the goodness of the incarnation. We get focused a lot on the importance of truth and uh, the quest for truth and the, um, the fight for truth um, in our culture. And that's an important thing, In no means um, am I trying to downplay that. But sometimes what gets lost in that is also beauty and goodness. And when we seek the truth of God, sometimes we forget, and when we proclaim the truth of God, sometimes we forget that we're also to, um, to proclaim the beauty of God and the goodness of God. And honestly, I think a world out there, is, uh, is is possibly getting a little bit tired of our arguments over truth, and, uh, and and they're desperate to know that God is good and God is beautiful as well. And so, when we come to worship, by no means do we compromise on the truth. By no means do we uh, do we downplay the truth. By no means um, do we uh, do, do we not focus on truth. But we also allow worship to reveal the beauty of who God is, the beauty of who Jesus is. Worship should be beautiful. Worship should display the beauty and the glory of God. And worship should help us know that God is good and God loves us. Which brings us to the final point that I want to look at here. and That is the whole point of what we're focused on this month. Worship is a means of grace. So as we look at Psalm 84, these final verses here, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. This is verse 10, if you're following along. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I would rather be with God. It doesn't matter where else I could be. I would rather be in the presence of God. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. And here's the promise that we have. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The Lord will give grace and glory. When we come to worship, it serves as a means of grace. God is imparting his grace to us. God is offering grace. We come to meet with God. We come into the very presence of God, the one who loves us, and we desire him. And God promises us grace. Now we have to understand grace, right? We talk a lot about grace, but what is grace? Sometimes we tend to focus on grace in ways that, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. That'd be simply maybe overlooking the wrong things we have done. Oh, that's grace. God's not holding things against us. God's not, um, you know, uh, imparting all of this punishment upon us that we deserve because of our guilt. Now there's an aspect of grace there. Yes, um, uh, that is important. God, um, God has offered grace and mercy to us in many ways, but grace is more than God simply overlooking the wrongs that we have done. But grace is also the empowerment that God gives us to live Christ-like lives. It's the transformation that God is doing within us. Grace is the ways that God gives of his very self to us so that we might be empowered and we might go forth as God's people. So we come to worship and it serves as a means of grace because in worship, if you haven't noticed, we actually encounter most of the means of grace that we've been talking about. We come And we offer prayer together. In fact, all of worship can be seen as a prayer that we are offering to God and in our encounter with God. We're engaging in prayer. The scriptures are proclaimed. The scriptures are open to us. We hear the word of God. God is speaking. God is is communicating to us through that. We come to the table, to the Eucharist, and we come empty-handed. We come to receive what God has for us that that we might take on Jesus Christ. We might be filled with Jesus Christ, as Mara so beautifully spoke of in her her testimony in that video, um, that we are nourished by God um, through Jesus Christ, and we are filled that we might go forth to live as God's people. We come in community. We come gathered with one another that uh, we know that we are part of a church to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, and to go forth together in um, representing God, uh, representing Christ as his body here on earth. So we come to receive the means of grace in worship, and in that, worship serves as a means of grace for us. So we come to this month, and we focus on worship as a means of grace. We invite you to come before God, to come to worship with an expectancy of that God is present. God is here. God wants to meet with you. God has called you into his presence. God wants to speak to you. God has invited you to a table where he desires to nourish you, to satiate you in every way so that God might send you forth to be his witnesses, empowered by his grace, empowered by his spirit, all to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray.